0: What I had in mind to talk about today was the fact that it is the darkest Wednesday of the year in this hemisphere. And here we are coming again around until the light comes back on all levels of understanding at the end of this week. We turn around the cycle of coming around the sun. I was thinking this morning when I woke up. I uh, remembered many, many years ago, uh, and it stayed in the state of my mind, having heard somewhere in some class and some lecture about um, Inuit uh, legends, about the kinds of stories that native peoples who lived in Arctic um, regions told each other, and. Um, I had thought about what it must be like to live in a very long, dark winter. I've I've really never been for long periods of time, very far north in the winter time. I have been at the North Pole in the summertime, really quite close to the solstice. And it's remarkable how wonderful the spirits feel. You just feel so (laughs) uplifted. You don't get so tired. There's just something wonderful and amazing about the sun never going down. Um, It's exciting to have the sun not go down. In some really visceral way it's exciting. Not only it's an astronomical phenomenon that's interesting, it's really a visceral phenomenon that's interesting. Your spirits, uh, my (coughs) spirits felt very up. And probably many of you know that in the wintertime when it's dark, Uh, Lots of people actually feel the pain of uh, uh, what's called S.A.D., Seasonal Affective Depression. And they kind of know, here comes my moody time of year. Other people who say, oh, I love it in the winter when it's dark because it's so cozy by the fire and so warm and I love to be indoors. People are different types and not everybody is moody about it. Some people look forward to it. But some people definitely feel altered with less light. But I thought about uh, what would it have been like um, for stretches of six weeks where there's practically total darkness around the North Pole, where the sun comes up a wee bit, it's the sky lightens, just like it does here in the morning, and then it darkens again. It's a really, really long night, and not very much day. And I thought, I remembered having learned at some point that there were various uh, legends for so stories that people told each other around fires at night about how one had to behave in order to propitiate the gods in such a way that they would bring back the light and probably make a whole story around <laughs> if we do things in a certain way and behave in a certain way, then the light will come back. But Maybe in ancient times, people weren't quite so sure that the light wouldn't come back. We know it will come back, but what if you didn't know that it was going to come back? So I thought about uh, the the parallel in modern times. We know that the sun is going to come back. We know that as of this Friday, It will turn around and the Earth will turn around in its orbital path will begin to shift back and will begin to move in relationship to the Sun so that the daylight is longer again. So we don't worry about that it's going to get increasingly darker on a geographical level, on a spatial level, but we don't have the same confidence really when uh, we move into those places of darkness of heart or darkness of soul, then we're really not so sure. I think that's true. I said we. I'd be probably better off if I said I because I am not so sure. But I'm, I'm saying we, guessing that that's true for all of us. You know that uh, It's true for me that uh, when I become confused or bewildered and unhappy because I'm confused or bewildered. Part of the mind fatigue that comes from confused and bewildered is that my level of doubt starts to wobble a little bit. Um, I've decided it's a level of doubt, not a level of faith. Decided actually what I was talking about this morning was faith. I wasn't sure until I finished writing all the notes for what I was going to do, what I was talking about, but I decided when the time I was finished that I think, I hope, this will be a, a talk about faith. And the kind of faith that I have in some really fundamental way that this journey that we have is a feasible one, that we can do it, that it's very hard it's hard to be a person, and it's hard to be in a life, for everybody. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't mean it's joyless or without beauty, certainly not, but it's hard to be a person and have a body and that is um, temporal. Um, one of my friends is one of the Spirit Rock teachers. I've forgotten the story for a long time. Uh, told us at the time of the birth of his uh, son, he said, here he was filled with such incredible joy. And uh, he and his wife had really wanted a child so badly. And uh, finally together, they had this beautiful son. And he said they they were just home with this new baby and the three of them sitting together and filled with such tremendous joy in this baby resting so comfortably against his mother and my friend thinking to himself from here on it's downhill (laughs) and 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 knowing and and my friend I just won't name him just just to save him that (laughs) privacy (laughs) you know my friends (laughs) Uh, is the least of gloomy people and actually a person committed to happiness but it's really such a clear understanding of the fact that it's difficult to have a life and nobody has it easy we imagine that other people's lives are easier than ours because we can't see into them and everybody's story is different but everybody's story is different and everybody's capacity to carry their story is different so the truth is, we haven't got a clue. We're all heroically doing this life, perhaps not telling each other as much as we might how hard it is. I got a really sweet Christmas card yesterday uh, that is telling how it is in a really funny way. I loved it. It's a, a Christmas letter that I we've gotten for many years now from some folks. I, I I brought it to show you this morning and I forgot it in my car and then I thought, well, just as well, because there's a photo of these folks and they're in County folks and you might know them. And <laughs> so anyway, uh, but it's a photo of them and uh, here they are. And uh, they're a decade older than Seymour and I are. And so here we are, 69 and 64, and they're probably 10 years older than we. And here's a photo of them standing behind the table uh, and smiling, really crouching down behind the table and smiling at the camera over an array of, uh, of a whole pharmacopeia. What you, clearly,
1: <laughs>
0: clearly, medicine bottles, and it says, with the help of a few pharmaceutical companies, we are wishing you all. <laughs> And it's it's wonderful, you know, they're great people. (laughs) And the fact is that the body is, it's a finite machine and it doesn't last forever. uh, (laughs) Really picked up my spirits. They have more bottles than I do. (laughs) And a good attitude about it, which I'm working on. In a sense, though, that's maybe that's the part that we tell each other the most—the part about the body falling apart, because everybody's does uh, sooner or later. If you make it to later, uh, uh, everybody's does. Sometimes sooner, and that's harder. Um, I think. I think since that's that's pretty much understood. We can share with each other and joke about it and send Christmas cards and say, you know you're over 60 when all the names in your phone directory end in MD and, you know, all (laughs) those. uh, You can't go to work anymore because you have too many appointments. (laughs) But that we joke about, but we don't really joke about the pain of the heart, which could start at any age and which we are more loath to tell each other, and more loath to confess to, the pain of the spirit. And I've decided, actually, that the pain of doubt is really what I meant to talk about when I, I said, it's not not talk about faith, because I have a tremendous faith that this is a doable, it has to be. It's a, it's a feasible journey. I have a tremendous faith that it's possible in the journey to celebrate it. And when I am bewildered and fatigued from bewilderment, I doubt it. Doubt, you remember in, in, the, in the Buddhist um, descriptions of hindrance states, Doubt is wobbly mind. It's a mind that can't hold something in good focus. It's like I used to see this clearly, but now I don't. And remembering that I did isn't always tremendously, doesn't do the whole job. I uh, talked to... Um, uh, talked to a person just the other day who's a very serious, ardent practitioner for many years. We're talking about his practice, a very serious practice, a lot of respect for his practice. And it's a hard time for him. Um, it's one of those times where the mind is wobbling. Um, and we talked about uh, the fact that even though you remember that there have been times of unwobbly mind where it isn't that the truth of dukkha disappeared. It is all subject to decay. That doesn't change. But there are times when that's so clear, along with the sense of there isn't anything that isn't lawful without a cause, that karma is true, that it's all miraculous, that it can even be all impersonal and miraculous, not I got this because of that, or I deserved it, or I didn't deserve it. Everything is because of everything, and there are times when that is so, so clear, that it's absolutely awesome. And there are times that it's very clear that it's not happening to anyone, that it's just happening, that the sense that there's someone who owns this story is so clearly just the sense that there's someone who owns a story. I'll tell you a side story right here and then we'll come back to my friend and his story. I was, for the last And when I wasn't here the last two weeks, uh, I was in Tahiti. Uh, Someone said to me, uh, you were really out of the country. And I said, no, I was out of this world, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Because it really is out of this world. It's not anything. If you look at it on a globe, it's nowhere. It's in the middle of the South Pacific way far away from everything, spatially and in a, really when you get there. The, 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 the Tahiti newspaper, published every day in Papaete, it's a fat newspaper. It's a tabloid, kind of like the New York Post. It's got a lot of pages. 66 one day, I looked at it. Papaete News all over the front. World News is on the back page. <laughs> on the back page, it says a little bit of what's going on. But it's it's the world through the Papa Ete eye view, and it's a whole different world. Not only from their view, but from my own view, as I was there for a while. So I went with my husband. I wasn't completely alone. But there was nothing else there that was a referent of my life here. Here, there's Spirit Rock. There are my other communities that I'm, I'm a part of. There are all my friends. There's the fax machine and the phone and the email and the mail that comes every day. And there's the stuff of my life and my family, all stuff that I delight in tremendously. And all stuff that I realized as days passed there construct an identity for me. I am me in relationship to all those things. Spirit Rock calls up and says, what should we do about this or that? I am then Spirit Rock faculty and if someone else calls and says, Mom, what should I do about this or that? I'm then somebody's mom. But if I'm in the middle of Tahiti and no one phones or asks or says or does, and if every day is exactly the same as every other day, and there's nothing to do at all except snorkel and be amazed at what's there, and then not snorkel and then snorkel and not <laughs> snorkel and, you know put on more suntan, oil and snorkel and not snorkel and and eat from time to time like a retreat, really it's like a retreat and i I did it like a retreat, really, except that we talked um, I began to realize there were moments of the same kind of awareness of there's no one really there that happened to me sometimes in the middle of retreats that uh, I forget myself in the best kind of a way. You know that uh, in relationship to nothing, the story that constructs me day to day isn't constructing me, and I have this odd sense that I could be anything else, uh, that I've chosen this life, and I like it a lot, but that it's completely heuristic. It's made up out of stories. It could be any other life. It is probably every other life, just in this particular form, but uh, there's a certain way in which I realize it. I realize we are all life happening in all these different bodies, popped up, for some period of time, kind of like the waves on the top of the ocean. Each one looks a little bit different. This one popped up, this one popped up, then it's gone, then it's gone. And we're all doing this in this life. We all pop up, and then we're gone, and we pop up, and we're gone. It's a curious feeling. It's not always comfortable, either. You think, uh uh-oh, maybe I ought to send a fax or something (laughs) or check in with somebody about something or other to sort of reconstitute my story before I forget who I am. It's not completely, uh, it's not completely not unnerving. I think that's right. Uh, So we'll come back to my friend. My friend was saying, you know, there are periods of time in practice, and he was reporting about his practice, where uh, that particular awareness of there's no one to whom this story is happening, it's just all happening. There are ways in which that awareness is quite freeing, uh, really amazing. So that the, that Sometimes it arises and one has such a sense of awe That this is all happening, this incredible display. And that we, in the middle of this incredible display, emotional charges happen and connections happen and attractions happen. And then stories happen attendant on that. And we believe the stories and we care about the stories and we get excited about the stories. It's like going to a movie. It's really interesting. There's sometimes that, that awareness that it's an empty display that we've made real and solidified but it isn't really is really disappointing and frightening and alienating. And my friend, talking about his practice, was saying, this is where I am. I look around, and I feel, doesn't everybody else get it? We have, all of us, bought into, this will make us happy. We're all doing it. We're all futilely, F- no, 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 not futilely, fruitlessly, maybe futilely, I not mean. fruitlessly, anyway. With futility, rushing around in our lives, doing all kinds of things that we think are supposed to make us happy. He was particularly at a professional convention and he said um, in the evening a group of people went out and everybody was laughing and in holiday spirit and he said I felt like I was on a different planet from them I couldn't play Um, in in his personal life this is filling in the other piece of the story in the previous week a person he knew, a friend of his in his community. A woman in her late 50s had stepped off a curb in New York City and gotten hit by a taxi cab and died. Just like that, One on her way to meet her family for dinner. So sometimes you think about, okay, illness overtakes us, we struggle with it a little bit and then it, sooner or later or we live for a while and not so long or maybe long but we don't think so much about stepping off curbs in the best of health and not making it to a dinner engagement. And uh, he said, you know, I had on my mind so much that every day we step off a million curbs, all of us. And he said, I have the sense that we're all walking along, all of us, on the edge of a cliff, on the edge of a precipice, but nobody knows it. Everybody else is walking along Like it's not the edge of a precipice, like it's smooth sailing or whatever the opposite of that would be. He said, and I'm the only one that knows it's the edge of the precipice. So I sit with my friends and they're all in holiday spirit and I feel completely on another planet from them. What should I do? A week ago, we'll come back to his story. A week ago, when I came home from Tahiti, I had a phone call uh, from uh, Sounds True, so you know I've made some tapes for Sounds True, and they put out a catalog every couple of months, and they called and said, call us back, and uh, uh, we're putting together the next catalog. Uh, Leave us a message of what do you do in two sentences or three. which already is a challenge for me, but anyway, <laughs> uh, in two sentences or three, what do you do when things fall apart? You know, what do you do when things get hard? What do you do when it's difficult? So I phoned back in this age of phone machines. Actually, it turned out I was. it's already gone to press. But I phoned back and I left my message. And I said, well, if you haven't gone to press yet, I don't know when you left this message. What I do when things get hard is I talk to my friends. And um, I left that message. Then I began to think about, I talked to my friends. I remembered that I heard that expression. Who knows when I first heard that, you know? It's a normal expression. I talk to my friends is a five-word sentence. Back in the time of, a lot of concern about what was happening in Nicaragua. Couldn't remember when I thought about it this morning. If it was late 70s, early 80s, somewhere. In that time, I had a friend um, in another city who uh, I met one evening because I uh, was—I must have been teaching in that city—and it was an old old friend of mine from. We went to high school together 50 years ago. And uh, he brought his woman friend with him, who I hadn't met before. And uh, uh, it turned out that she had been very active in uh, the Nicaraguan cause and working with groups that, were, that held the same point of view that I did that uh, kept, uh, uh, in spite of all kinds of difficulties and all kinds of uh, setbacks, pursuing their cause and I said to her we had the briefest of interchanges and I said to her uh, knowing that the cause was so frequently defeated it was such an uphill battle I said to her how do you not get discouraged and without a moment's hesitation she said I talked to my friends <laughs> and that was a long time ago so I thought about it I talked to my friends But I heard that in a way, like you sometimes hear an ordinary phrase and it writes itself into your consciousness. So I called Sounds True the other day and I said, when things get difficult, I talk to my friends. I said that without thinking. It is true, that's what I do. When I talked with my friend the other day about his practice and he said, I feel completely weird and and nobody knows that we're walking on the edge of a cliff. And we are, all of us, all the time. And sometimes when a person near us falls off a cliff, then we remember, oh yeah, it's a cliff. And when we remember, we get so sensitized to the fact that this is all so fragile, all so temporal, all so amazing. You know, no matter. I mean, we do lots of things to keep ourselves in optimum health and all of that, but basically it's an amazing thing to come through a day and make it home again, okay? Or have all your people who are dear to you get home, okay? In body and in mind. It's hard to stay okay. And in those times when something dreadful happens, we remember about how frail it all is. And I remember always that line from the Dhammapada that says, whoever fully understands impermanence, sometimes it's translated that way, sometimes it says whoever fully understands death ceases to be contentious, that realize we are all of us, every one of us, walking along the edge of a cliff. Um, How could we be anything? other than solicitous, I like to remember that um, the very first time that uh, I went to do mindfulness practice was a weekend in a private house in San Mateo uh, in the spring of 1977. It was a very difficult weekend. I had no idea of what I was doing there. My husband had convinced me to go um, dropped me off there and picked me up on Sunday night, <coughs> when I was plenty annoyed at him for having um, not adequately prepared me for what was going to happen. Um, was Everything about it was difficult that weekend. Um, and two months later, I was back on a plane going up to uh, Washington State for a 14-day retreat. <laughs> uh, and uh, when I look back and I thought about um, what was it really that caused me, since all of my memory of that is that it was a very difficult weekend, to find myself back, I remembered that there was a um, redwood burl, one, you know, one of those polished redwood burls that you buy in state parks in the gift shop. Usually say, home sweet home, or mother knows best, or something (laughs) like that. This one said, it was on the mantelpiece of the living room of this house in San Mateo, and it said, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? I thought to myself, that's okay. Uh, I'd like to think that I thought to myself, if that's what they're teaching here, then uh, I'll come. I don't know, but what I remember back is that it was the best thing about the weekend. I was thinking about what do we do? What do we mean when we say I talk to my friends? I remember talking to um, Julie Wester one time. Julie is one of the teachers here. You may know her well. She's a wonderful teacher. And uh, probably 10 years ago, it was a very hard time in both of our lives in terms of personal family afflictions. And uh, we were talking to each other on the telephone. Uh, And the truth was that both of us had very painful things happening in our lives. There isn't much more you can say than, I'm sorry. I mean, there isn't, it's not so helpful to, it's not helpful at all, I don't think, to try to make a helpful story out of it like this. in, in the end, this will be good for you. I mean, <laughs> with my friend on the telephone uh, when, when uh, in, our, in our conversation about his uh, meditation practice the other day, we talked back and forth about um, these times of uh, feeling um, just so estranged from the sense of confidence. The faith stays, but somehow so estranged from it. It's somewhere out there. The confidence wobbles. Doubt isn't exactly... Doubt certainly is there. Doubt is there. Confidence wobbles. You have a recollection of faith, but like it belonged to somebody else. Um, talked about that there wasn't anything... I, I said to him, I talked to my friends, I said, it's good we're talking. and uh, uh, But also being clear about there's nothing that I had to say, just that it's good that we're talking, and that there wasn't anything uh, nobly redeeming that I could say, just that we're talking about it. And uh, uh we talked about do you remember there there were for a while those very upbeat um uh posters that you could buy when life makes you gives you lemons, make lemonade and things like that mm. uh When life gives you lemons, you don't feel like making lemonade. That's a problem. And the the other one that I remember is, you know, uh, I believe in the sun even when it's covered with clouds. Not really, you know. That's the truth. That's really the truth. We tell the truth. That's the problem. If we could make the lemonade, if we could believe in the sun. The trouble is the mind wobbles, and when it wobbles, it gets fatigued. It's as if the memory is there, but there is not enough strength to connect the memory with the actuality of one's being. I think when we talk to our friends, there's a possibility that the friends will tie us back to our memory. Or the friends, who at that point are connected to the memory, will hold us up. Literally or figuratively, with their conversation or with their touch, with their presence was thinking about uh, uh, how we hold each other up by say, by saying to each other, this is all right, we can do this. I was on the phone with my cousin last night. So here's my aunt, who's my only relative older than I am, my only blood relative older than I am. She's 81 years old, and she's had a disease that uh, has been being treated for a year and a half, but that... It was clear she would die of, and it looks like now is her time, actually a little bit sooner than we had anticipated. But um, I have a very small family um, and uh, just this one aunt and uh, my two cousins, the children of this one aunt. And uh, so my cousin is, of course, of course, already in Florida, and I'm talking to her on the phone last night. And uh, here's my, and she's in the very room where my aunt is I' we talking about when I can get a plane and when I'll be there and what we'll do for a memorial service. And um, uh, my cousin's saying, well, what should we do given this and that and the other circumstance? And I said, well, this is what we should do. I'm the elder of us and I have more experience. I said, this is what she sh- we should do. So I said, she said, that's good. Let's do it that way. And... Um, I had a memory in that very moment that 40-some years ago when my mother died uh, and uh, I was in Texas and, my, and I had to fly back to New York for the funeral, uh, my mother's sister, this very aunt, also flew from wherever she was to meet for the funeral. And so we met and uh, uh, funerals in, in Jewish tradition happen very fast after the person dies. So there isn't a lot of time to regroup and think about things. So we fly to New York, we meet, and we're getting dressed to go to the funeral. And uh, my aunt said to me, uh, what should we wear? And, uh, or, and I said, I don't know. Should we wear lipstick? Do you think it's all right to wear lipstick to a funeral, or is it wrong? And my aunt said, it's a really great pity that Gladys isn't here, because she would know just what to do. <laughs> and, uh, I thought to myself, first of all, I I was also pleased to think about that memory in connection with this very aunt, because this is the forty-some year later continuation of that tradition. Should we wear lipstick to the memorial service or not? What's the right thing to do? Uh, I think that what we do in life is we say to each other, wow, this is overwhelming. What should I do now? And someone who knows who's done it a few times more than we have, will tell us. Or we'll guess, because nobody knows, really. In the same conversation with my cousin yesterday about what should we do, the conversation went on for a little while, and my cousin's daughter is being married next year. And so the conversation went on, what should we do about the wedding, and should we have it here or there? That's a, Because I think what we're gonna do the whole life is we're gonna talk about what should we do about this memorial service, and what should we do about the wedding, and what should we name this baby? And what should we do about all of those arisings and passings away that are part of the life situation? And those of us who did it a few more times will have suggestions, and other people will have suggestions, and they won't be right or wrong suggestions. They'll just be answers to the to the to the statement. I don't know what to do now, and the answer will be. Neither do I, but we'll guess together, and I am witnessing to the fact that life is awesome. We don't know really what to do. Making always the best guess. I, um, I met a woman in an airport in uh, Newburgh, New York, last spring. Um, I was waiting to take the plane to Chicago. She was going someplace else. And she sat down in the chair just to my left. There was an empty chair. She sat down. She was older than I was. Um, There was a young man, looked in his 20s. I figured he would be her grandson. He turned out to be her grandson. Kind of installed her in that chair and said, I'll go get you a Pepsi and went off to get one and brought it back. And she just sat and uh, wasn't doing anything, wasn't reading a magazine or she just, just sitting. Um, and, uh, it's my wound anyway, so I said to her, um, are you looking forward to your trip? And she said, no, not too much. Uh, she said, it's only the second time I've flown. And, uh, she said, the flying here was the first. She was flying back to, uh, West Virginia. I said, this is only the second time I've been in a plane. I said, why did you come? And she said, well, my, uh, granddaughter was getting married, so I really had to come. I wanted to come. So we talked for a while about the wedding that had been the day before, and she was um, pleased with how beautiful it had been, and how the cake, and the band, and the minister, and talked about all the things that you talk about about weddings. And um, I said, uh, uh, is this granddaughter the child of your son or your daughter? She said, uh, well, she is a child of my daughter. My daughter died 10 years ago. And then went on to tell me about her daughter's stomach cancer that she had died of. And then went on. uh, I think at that point, I said to her She's just told me that her child died. I said, was that the worst thing that ever happened to you? And she thought for a little bit. And then she said, no, actually, it was my first husband's death that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And and I tell it to you now, my sense of why that was remarkable to me is it didn't matter what the answer would have been. There wasn't a right answer or a wrong answer that the death of a child is worse than. For everybody, everything is different. It mattered to me that she thought about it, and that there were degrees of worseness, and that she could reflect on degrees of worseness. No, the worst thing was the death of my first husband. And now that she said the death of her first husband, and she's alone, and then find out in subsequent conversation that she then had a second husband who has also died. Went on to the rest of the conversation. She had other children. Of her four children, only one was living. Different things had happened to all of them. One of them uh, had died pursuant to... uh, uh, Vietnam. And she thought it had something probably to do with Asian orange. Which is very modulated in her voice. It wasn't uh, we were just having we were just two older women in an airport having a conversation, talking about what's what's been true. And um uh, At one point I said to her, I I suppose I was was impressed with uh, the straightforwardness of her story, given the number of difficult things that had happened to her in her life. I said, uh, are you a religious woman? She looked at me. She'd been a little bit shy, I think. First of all, she's not used to flying. She's probably not used to strange women talking to her in airports either. (laughs) uh, (laughs) I say, you're a religious woman. And she'd been looking away, kind of. She was perfectly content to talk, I think. But then she looked straight at me and she said, I do the best I can, which I thought was a great answer to that. And then I said, do you belong to a church? And she said, I do. And I said, does does your church hold you up? And she said, they do. She said, but you know what? She said, "Um, I have very good neighbors. I talk to my neighbors. So I'm sure you hear. I heard the echo of I talk to my friends. I think I just talk to my friends is the answer. Um, I think to myself, Did I finish the story of Julie, or did I leave it in the middle? The end of the story with Julie, as Julie said at one point, you know, Sylvia, the the Buddha was right. We're just talking about the difficulties in our lives, and there was nothing to say that would mitigate the difficulties. It's just difficult. So The Buddha was right about tukka. And I've understood what Julie said in more profound ways over the years. Um, it's um, It's not that I have come to think that what the Buddha meant is that everything about life is a difficulty or everything about it is a tragedy, because he certainly talked about joy and happiness and the thing that people called him was the happy one. I think maybe thinking about um, the insight of dukkha is, and, and saying the Buddha was right, is maybe off a little bit. I think you have to look at, I have to look at all three of the insights. The insight about suffering being that clinging of the mind to what's happening or not happening. What we wish would happen and doesn't happen or what happened, which we wish hadn't happened. Think about the Buddha was right about suffering. Also, the Buddha was right that think about I, my senses, I know, about there not being any separateness, that it's all connections. I sometimes think I, not sometimes, I think I am interpreting in a way that works for me, um, an understanding about the connections. Those attachments, those um, connections that exist, those um, affective ties that that define me in a certain way. I say, I talk to my friends, I talk to my friends as a dualistic statement. There are, there are, talking happens on the basis of affective bonds. And somehow, because of those affective bonds, there is suffering around loss. And I think it's the very same affective bonds that keep us afloat. Thinking about the fact that the closer my friend, the more of my pain I'm likely to share, and I thought that's probably true for all of us. And then I wondered why? Why? Don't, why aren't we all completely candid all the time? And I thought maybe it's because we're maybe we, because we all imagine nobody else is at the edge of the cliff and only we are, uh, or. Maybe because, in some ways, uh, we trust that vulnerability to the people we feel the closest to. Maybe it would be too overwhelming if we all told everybody everything all the time. I have moments that I have an intimation of what it might be like if we all told everybody all the time. And then I think, maybe we don't have to tell, we just have to know it's true. This is one of them. I was uh, in New York City taking the train up to uh, Tarrytown to visit some friends. And uh, it's a beautiful view out the window because you watch the Hudson River as you go up on the Hudson River line. And um, I was looking out at the river and then I looked down the train and I had one of those seats that wasn't facing forward that's facing into the car, so you can look all the way down the car this way. So I looked all the way down, and you see perhaps 40 different faces. Everybody riding along, looking out the window, reading a book, doing something. And you don't know anything about anybody. And you don't know, I thought about them, I thought to myself, probably one of those people has some malignancy somewhere that they know about and are treating. 40 people there, that's a good, probably someone has one and doesn't know yet, it's about to find out. And someone has high blood pressure and someone else has heart disease and someone else has diabetes. You can't know from looking. I was thinking about, um, I talked to a friend of mine the other day who uh, recently stepped off a curb and twisted her ankle so badly that she was in a cast. really had such a difficult sprain. And she said she needed to go to another city for some event. And she had to be taken off the plane in a wheelchair and then left somewhere in a wheelchair while her husband was negotiating some tickets. So she was just sitting in the terminal in a wheelchair and people going by. And I said, how did it feel? You know, Because I think about that sometimes when people go by in wheelchairs because I think to myself, sooner or later, I wonder, how does that feel? I said, said, how did it feel? She said, well, first it felt weird because I wanted to tell everybody, look, I'm all right, you know, and it's really not bad. She said, but I couldn't tell everybody that. And she said, so actually I began to sing to myself a a mantra that I have uh, that makes me feel better and As I felt better and less self-kind, I felt better from the mantra and singing it over and over. I started to feel better, I started to smile. I started to smile, then I noticed that people who looked at me smiled back instead of looking away. They felt more comfortable. And I thought about it after I'd gotten off the phone with her. And I thought about how, in fact, if we look at each other and smile and have a handicap that is visible, We are telling the other person, it's all right, and I'm a witness to your handicap. In that particular case, they don't know why she's in that wheelchair. But if we look at each other and are witness to each other, with or without a wheelchair, with or without a visible thing, we don't know what's in a person. We don't know what physical ailments is in a person. We don't know what their heart is pained with. They don't know what their mind is confused with. They don't know what thing, large or small, has their heart captives. Don't know about the degree of suffering. I looked down this train in Tarrington and so said, I don't know a thing. I don't know who is going home to get married or who is going home to a burial. You don't know anything. All you know is that it's really fragile. And so that you end up really feeling benevolent. Benevolently disposed is what it is. Kindly. You make prayers for people, I think. Wherever you're going, may you be well. It's more than ceasing to be contentious. I think that goes halfway, if you know impermanence, we cease to be contentious. If you know how frail it all is, I think we get tremendously compassionate. I think it was Thomas Merton who said, really it's all suffering and it's all compassion. So I had one more thought about, I talk to my friends, because sometimes I think, what about if what we need to say is unspeakable? Sometimes there are levels of grief where you really cannot speak, literally when we're thinking about speak. What about when it's unspeakable? You can't speak to your friends. I think about that, what would I do? Well, then I think probably what I'd like is friends to hold my hand. And if I couldn't stand that, I'd like friends who could sit nearby and witness. I think that if we witness for each other that this is the truth, it's extremely hard to have a life. And we can do it. And we'll hold the light for each other. That's what I thought about when I was thinking about um, when I become bewildered with whatever it is that's bewildering me. It's as if someone has turned down the light. Do you remember? You probably don't remember. I hardly remember. There was a movie called Gaslight in the 1940s where, uh, I can't even remember who it was, kept turning down the lights in order to confuse his wife, Charles Boyer. (laughs) Enough of us are old enough. And it shows on late night
1: TV.
0: And it shows on late night TV. (laughs) And you can rent it. (laughs) Maybe we should all do it. You turn down the lights and then you confuse the other people because you can't see clearly and you think you're seeing things that aren't there. And you could become bewildered. So you need somebody else who is seeing clearly, who, whose vision is not dimmed during that time. So maybe that's really the answer to what do you do when there isn't a lot of light. Uh, you, uh, what, what do you, maybe this is not the answer to what do you do. Maybe my answer is I talk to my friends, but I have a faith that there's <coughs> enough light that enough people carry and will share it. Do you know how in the last minute when we remembered the name of that old movie, Gaslight, Charles Boyer, you can get it on late night TV. You can go and rent it in the video store. We all laughed and we all got a little bit delighted all of a sudden, you know, like, oh, maybe I'll go to the video store. I'll rent Gaslight. I think one of the things that holds us up is that all of a sudden, in the middle of really confronting the truth of life, which is that it's very, very difficult, we accidentally laugh we're accidentally delighted and we're accidentally curious we say well okay today it's really all true about dukkha but tonight i'll just rent a video and tomorrow i'll address it again i think that's what we'll do just until the end of our life and i hope we'll all do it together for a long long time so now let's sit a little bit So may all are coming around into the light be a light that comes around into all the levels of our being, into our daytime outside world, and into our hearts, into our spirits. May all those parts that need to be enlightened flourish in the new light. And may all the parts that are um, fallow in the darkness that have the potential of growing when they meet with new light, grow in the best possible way. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings come to the end of suffering. Thank you.